History History Podcast. I am Jordan, and it's just going to be me again today, so uh, buckle up for that. Uh, Allie is in Pennsylvania for the holiday, um, so I'm actually going to record next week's as well. So it will probably be me for next week, and then we should be back to normal from there on out. Just been a little wild with all the uh, the craziness going on, so I apologize. Um but thank you for continuing to listen, even though it's just me and I'm monotone and not very interesting to listen to. I appreciate you. And yeah, so we should be back to normal here soon, um, like I said. And yeah, just uh, hang in there because I know she's the, the better speaker, but we're going to do it anyway. We're just going to we're going to power through. This topic today is something I learned about in a college history class. And I, it's one of those things, you know, like whenever you learn certain things and then you'll just be like zoning off and then you'll just randomly think of it. And then, yeah, that's, there's, well, this is one of those things for me. I don't, it's just very, it's like, it's almost like a movie plot or something. It's like one of those things that happened and it doesn't seem like it really happened. It seems like, cause I watched it in a documentary. So it seems like it was just like a thing that somebody made it for a movie, but it was real. This actually happened. So, uh, yeah, just one of those things. So I thought I'd share it with you. I feel like this is one of those things from history that not a lot of people know about. So, um, yeah, I like sharing those cause it's just something a little different, a little unique, something not everybody talks about. So if you've heard about it, great. Maybe you'll learn a little bit more. And if not strap in, cause you're about to learn a lot. So the weather underground organization, uh, W O commonly known as the Weather Underground, was a radical left militant organization active in the late 1960s and 70s, founded on the Ann Arbor campus of the University of Michigan. It was originally called the Weathermen. The Weather Underground organized in 1969 as a faction of Students for a Democratic Society, largely composed of a national office leadership of SDS and their supporters. Beginning in 1974, the organization expressed political goal was to create a revolutionary party and overthrow American imperialism. So, you know, not something you generally want to hear if you're in government. Uh, not a good thing, I would say. The FBI described the Weather Underground as a domestic terrorist group. Yeah, no kidding. With a revolutionary position characterized by black power and opposition to the Vietnam War. The Weather Underground took part in domestic attacks such as the jailbreak of Timothy Leary in 1970, who, if you don't know, um, was a big, I think he was a big proponent of LSD. He did like a bunch of study. He might have been the one that discovered LSD. I'll have to do another episode on him because I know he has something to do with drugs. So, yeah, these college kids are like, hey, we like drugs. Let's get him out of there. Um, they also participated in the Days of Rage which was the Weather Underground's first riot in October of 1969 in Chicago, time to coincide with the trial of the Chicago 7. In 1970, the group issued a declaration of a state of war against the United States government under the name the Weather Underground Organization. 
in the 1970s, the Weather Underground was conducted. Uh, I'm sorry, the Weather Underground conducted a bombing campaign targeting government buildings and several banks. Some attacks were preceded by evacuation warnings, along with threats identifying the particular matter that the attack was intended to protest. Three members of the group were killed in an accidental Greenwich Village townhouse explosion, but none of the no one was killed in any of the other bombings. I uh, watched in the documentary I was talking about earlier. Um, they were talking about this this explosion, and Dustin Hoffman, the actor, lived like next door to where this took place. So there's pictures of a young Dustin Hoffman just like standing on the street next to a blown up building. And that's just like, that's a part of the, the documentary. We're like, there's no way that's real. But yeah, that's, that's, that's true. That happened. The Weather Underground issued in connection with the bombing of the United States Capitol on March 1st, 1971, indicated that it was in protest of the invasion of Laos. The Weather Underground asserted that its May 19th, 1972 bombing of the Pentagon was in retaliation for the U.S. bombing raid in Hanoi. Could it, like, people just bombed the Pentagon? How, that would never happen today. It's just crazy that, that was, these things happened. Yeah, they bombed the Capitol and the Pentagon, and were still just walking around. The Weather Underground announced that its January 29th, 1975 bombing of the United States Department of State building was in response to the escalation in Vietnam. So they're just out here blowing up, well, not really blowing up, but placing bombs that could hurt people in these huge government buildings. And it's, it's just wild that that's, this actually happened. The weather underground began to disintegrate after the United States reached a peace accord in Vietnam in 1973, and it was defunct by 1977. The group took its name from Bob Dylan's lyric, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows, from the song Subterranean Homesick Blues in 1965. The Dylan line was also used as a title of a position paper distributed at an SDS convention in Chicago on June 18, 1969. This founding document called for a, in quotes, white fighting force to be allied with the Black Liberation Movement and other radical movements to achieve, in quotes, the destruction of U.S. imperialism and cl- uh, form a classless communist world. So that's what's going on, you know. Little, uh, little much, I, I would think, you know, just like calm down a little, you know. So the weathermen emerged from a campus-based opposition to the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War and from the civil rights movements of the 1960s. One of the factors that contributed to the radicalization of SDS members was the economic research and action project that the SDS undertook in northern urban neighborhoods from 1963 to 1968. This project was aimed at creating an interracial movement of the poor that would mobilize for the full and fair employment or guaranteed annual income and political rights for poverty class Americans. Their goal was to create a more democratic society which generates political freedom, economic and physical security, abundant education, and incentives for the wide cultural variety. While the initial phase of the SDS involved campus organizing phase, um, or phase two involved community organizing, these experiments uh, led to SDS members coming to conclude that deep social change would not happen through community organizing and 
electoral politics and that more radical and disruptive tactics were needed. In the late 1960s, United States military action in Southeast Asia escalated, especially in Vietnam. In the U.S., the anti-war sentiment was particularly pronounced during the 1968 U.S. presidential election. The origins of the Weathermen can be traced to the collapse and fragmentation of the Students for a Democratic Society uh, following the split between office holders of SDS and their supporters of the Progressive Labor Party. During the factional struggle, national office leaders such as Bernadine Dorn and Mike Klonsky began announcing their emerging perspectives, and Klonsky published a document titled Toward a Revolutionary Youth Movement or RYM for short. RYM promoted the philosophy that young workers possess the potential to be a revolutionary force and overthrow capitalism, if not by themselves, then by transmitting radical ideas to the working class. Klonsky's, that's a tough one, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a name there, Klonsky. <laughs> oh, man. Man, some guys are named like James Bond and other guys are Klonsky. That's a rough one. Rough go of it. Sorry, Bob. Klonsky's document reflected the philosophy of the national office and was eventually adopted as an official SDS doctrine. During the summer of 1969, the national office began to split. A group led by Klonsky (laughs) became known as RYM2, and the other side, RYM1, was led by Dorn and endorsed more aggressive tactics, such as direct action. As some members felt that years of nonviolent resistance had done little to nothing to stop the Vietnam War. The mother, what the mother men is what I almost said. They sound way nicer. <laughs> the the weathermen strongly sympathized with the radical Black Panther Party. The police killing of Fred Hampton prompted the weathermen to issue a declaration of war upon the United States government. Yeah, um, I'm also going to do an episode on Fred Hampton eventually because that story is pretty fascinating. So this line says, we petitioned, we demonstrated, we sat in. I was willing to get hit over the head. I did. I was willing to go to prison. I did. To me, it was a question of what had to be done to stop a much greater violence that was going on, said uh, member David Gilbert. At the SDS convention in Chicago on June 18th, 1969, the national office attempted to persuade unaffiliated, unaffiliate, that is not a word. Man, I'm reading good today. I are good at I are good at words today. <laughs> so let's start that over. All right. The National Office attempted to persuade unaffiliated delegates not to endorse a takeover of SDS by progressive labor who had packed the convention with their supporters. At the beginning of the convention, two position papers were passed out by the National Office uh, leadership. One a revised statement of Klonsky's RYM manifesto and the other called, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows. Going back to Bobby Dylons, you know. (laughs) The latter document outlined the position of the group that would become the Weatherman. It was signed by Karen Ashley, Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dom, John Jacobs, Jeff Jones, Gary Long, um, Howie Mactinger, Jim Mellon, Terry Robbins, Mark Rudd, and Steve Tapas. The document called for creating a clandestine revolutionary party. Um, here's a quote. The most important task for us was uh, the most important task for us toward making the revolution 
and the work of our collective should engage in is the creation of a mass revolutionary movement, which a clandestine revolutionary party would be possible. A revolutionary mass movement is different from the traditional revisionist mass of becoming sympathizers. Rather, it is akin to the Red Guard in China. Based on the full participation and involvement of masses of the people in practice of making the revolution, a movement with a willing, full willingness to participate in violent and the illegal struggle. At the convention, the Weatherman's faction of Students for a Democratic Society planned for an October 8th to 11th as a national action built around John Jacobs' slogan, Bring War Home. The national action grew out of a re uh, resolution drafted by Jacobs and introduced at the October 1968 SDS National Council meeting in Boulder, Colorado. The resolution titled, The Elections Don't Mean Shit, Vote Where the Power Is, Our Power Is in the Street. So, you know, you don't really got to read between the lines on that one. Pretty straightforward. And this was adopted by the council and was prompted by the success of the Democratic National Convention protests in August of 1968 and reflect, uh, reflected Jacob's strong advocacy of direct action. In July of 1969, 30 members of the Weatherman leadership traveled to Cuba and met with North Vietnamese rep representatives to gain from their revolutionary experience. The North Vietnamese uh, requested armed political action in order to stop the U.S. government's war in Vietnam. Subsequently, they accepted funding, training, recommendations on tactics and slogans from Cuba, and perhaps explosives as well. After the Days of Rage riots, the Weathermen held the last of its National Council meetings from December 26th to December 31st, 1969, in Flint, Michigan. The meeting, dubbed the War Council by 300 people who attended, adopted Jacob's call for violent revolution. Dorn opened the conference by telling the delegates they needed to stop being afraid and begin the armed struggle. Over the next five days, the participants met in informal groups to discuss what is going underground uh, meant and how to organize collectives and justifications for violence. In the evening, the groups reconvened for a mass wargasm. War wow, what a word. And they practiced karate and engaged in physical exercise, sang songs, and listened to speeches. What kind of weird, like, camp is this? <laughs> like, all right. First things first, we got to practice karate. <laughs> oh. Man, what a time. This is, this is hilarious. Practice karate and then sang. Man, <laughs> it's like summer camp. <laughs> All right, sorry, back on track. The War Council ended with a major, uh, a major speech by John Jacobs. Jacob condemned with path pacifism of white middle class American youth a belief that he claimed they held because they were insulated from the violence which affiliated afflicted blacks and the poor. He predicted a successful revolution and declared that the youth were moving away from passivity and apathy and toward a new high-energy culture of repersonalization and was brought on by drugs, sex, and an armed revolution. He said, we're against everything that's good and decent in honky America. Wow. He said, we will burn and loot and destroy. We are the incubation of your mother's worst nightmare. This guy seems like he needs like a hug, you know? 
They should have been. They should have done karate, then sang, then hugged, and then they might have been like, you know what? Let's not be your mother's worst nightmare. <laughs> this is what a this guy seems a little out there. Two major decisions came out of the War Council. The first was to go underground and begin a violent armed struggle against the state without attempting to organize or mobilize a broad swath of the public. The Weather Underground hoped to create underground collectives in major cities throughout the country. In fact, the Weathermen eventually created only three significant active collectives, one in California, one in the Midwest, and one in New York City. The New York City collective was led by Jacobs and Terry Robbins and included Ted Gold, Kathy Bolden, Kathy Wilkerson, a lot of Kathys, and Diana Ogden. Jacobs was Robbins, uh, or Jacobs was one of Robbins' biggest supporters, and pushed the weathermen to let Robbins be as violent as he wanted to be. Maybe don't do that, you know. I mean, I'm not telling you how to lead your party, but uh, don't just be like, "Hey, let him be violent." <laughs> The Weatherman National Leadership agreed as the New York or as did the New York City Collective. The collective's first target was Judge John Murtaugh, who was overseeing the trial of the Panther 21. The second major decision was a dissolution of SDS. After the summer of 1969, fragmentation of SDS, Weatherman's adherents explicitly claimed themselves the real leaders of SDS and retained control of the SDS National Office. Thereafter, any leaflet, label, or logo bearing the name Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, was in fact the views and politi- or politics of the Weathermen, not the slate elected by progressive labor. Weathermen contain- contained the vast majority of former SDS National Committee members, including Mark Rudd, David Gilbert, and Bernadine Dorn. The group, while small, was able to uh, commandeer the mantle of SDS in all of its membership lists. But with Weatherman in charge, there was little to no support from local branches or members of the organization, and local chapters soon disbanded. At the War Council, the Weathermen decided to close the National SDS office, ending the major campus-based organization in the 1960s, which at its peak was a mass organization with 100,000 members. The thesis of the Weatherman theory, as expounded in its founding document, You Don't Need a Weatherman's Tell Which Way the Wind Blows, was that, that, in quotes, the main struggle going on in the world today is between U.S. imperialism and the national liberation struggles against it, in quotes, and was based on Lenin's theory of imperialism, first expounded in 1916 in Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. In the Weatherman theory, oppressed peoples are the creators of the wealth empire, and it is them that belongs to it. The goal of a revolutionary struggle must be to control and use the wealth in the interest of the oppressed peoples of the world. The goal is the destruction of the U.S. imperialism and the achievement of a classless world, world communism. The Vietnamese and other third world countries, as well as third world people within the United States, play a vanguard role. They, in quote, set the terms for class struggle in America. The role of the revolutionary youth movement is to build a centralized organization of revolutionaries, a Marxist-Leninist party, supported by a mass revolutionary movement to support international liberation movements and open another battlefield of the revolution. The theoretical basis of the revolutionary youth movement was an insight of most of the American population 
including both students and the supposed middle class, comprised. Due to their relationship to the instruments of production, the working class, thus the organizational basis of STS, which had begun in elite colleges and had been extended to public institutions as the organization grew, could be extended to youth, use, that's not a word, to youth as a whole by including students, those serving in the military, and the unemployed. Students could be viewed as workers gaining skills prior to employment. This contrasted to the progressive labor view, which viewed students and workers as being in separate categories, which could ally but should not jointly organize. FBI analysis of the travel history of the founders and initial followers of the organization emphasized contacts with foreign governments, particularly the Cuban and North Vietnamese, and their influence on ideology of the organization. Participation in the Viceramos Brigade, I think is how that's pronounced, a program which involved U.S. students volunteering to work in a sugar harvest in Cuba is highlighted as a common factor in the background of the founders of the Weather Underground, with China as a secondary influence. This experience was cited by both Katie Bowden and Bernadine Dorn uh, as a major influence on their political development. Terry Robbins took the organization's name from the lyrics of a Bob Dylan song, Subterranean Homesick Blues, which featured the lyrics, You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. The lyrics have been quoted at the bottom of an influential essay in the SDS newspaper, New Left Notes. By using this title, the, weather, uh, the weatherman meant partially to appeal to the segment of the U.S. youth-inspired action for social injustice by Dylan's songs. The Weatherman group had long held that militancy was becoming more important than nonviolent forms of anti-war action, and that university campus-based demonstrations needed to be punctuated with more dramatic actions, which had the potential to interfere with the U.S. military and internal security apparatus. Yikes. The belief was that these types of urban guerrilla actions would act as a catalyst as the coming revolution. Many international events indeed seemed to support the Weatherman's overall assertion that worldwide revolution was imminent, such as the tumultuous cultural revolution in China, the 1968 student revolts in France, Mexico City, and elsewhere, the Prague Spring, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, the emergence of Tupamaros organization in Uruguay, the emergence of the Guinea-Bissauan Revolution, and similar Marxist-led independence movement throughout Africa and within the United States, and the prominence of the Black Panther Party together with a series of, in quotes, ghetto rebellions throughout poor black neighborhoods across the country. Uh, We felt that doing nothing in a period of repressive violence is a form of violence itself. That That's really the part I think is the hardest for people to understand. If you sit in your house, live your white life, and go to your white job and allow the country that you live in to go murder people and commit genocide as you sit there and don't do anything about it, that's violence. And that was a quote from member Naomi Jaffe. The weathermen were outspoken critics of the concepts that later became known as white privilege and identity politics. As the civil disorder in poor black neighborhoods intensified in the early 1970s, Bernadine Dorn said, in quotes, White youth must choose sides now. They must either fight on the side of the oppressed or be on the side of the oppressor. Wow. They're just really out for uh, 
dividing people, it seems. Uh, the weatherman called for the overthrow of the United States government, which doesn't really seem like the best idea, I would say. Um, but, you know, they seem to not have a lot of good ideas, so it seems that's par for the course at this point. Uh, the Weather Underground maintained that their stance differed from the rest of the movements at the same time in the sense that they predicated their critiques on the notion that they were engaged in an anti-imperialist, anti-racist struggle. Weather uh, put the international proletariat at the center of their political theory. Weather warned that other political theories, including those addressing class interest and youth interests, were, in quotes, bound to lead in a racist and chauvinist direction. Weather denounced that other political theories of the time as objectively racist. If they did not side with the international proletariat, such as political theories they argued needed to be smashed. Members of Weather further uh, contended that the efforts of organizing whites against their own perceived oppression were attempts by whites to carve out even more privilege than they already derive from the imperialist nexus. Weather's political theory sought to make every struggle an anti-imperialist, anti-racist struggle. Out of this premise came their interrogation of critical concepts that would later be known as white privilege. As historian Dan Berger writes, Weather raised the question, what does it mean to be a white person opposing racism and imperialism? At one point, the Weatherman adopted the belief that all white babies were tainted with the original sin of skin privilege, declaring that all white babies are pigs. Wow. With one weather woman telling the feminist poet Robin Morgan, you have no right to that pig male baby. After she saw Morgan breastfeeding her son and told Morgan to put the baby in the garbage. So they seem pretty stable, I would say. is like, <laughs> that is the craziest thing I've ever read. You have no privilege to have that white baby, that white pig. What the fuck? This is these people. These are the kind of people that you, you, there's no reasoning with. Like, they're just, like, setting their ways, and that's just how it is. And you can't talk to them, and you can't... Yeah, I don't know. It's just... I couldn't imagine having that mindset. And that's just, that's just how it is. You can't... Like I said, you can't... There's no... Uh, you can't reason with these people. All right. Ugh, yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that statement. Sorry. So, Charles Manson was an obsession with the group and Bernadine Dorn claimed he truly understood the, in, the inequity of white America, with the Manson family being praised for the murder of Sharon Tate. Dorn's cell uh, subsequently made its salute for a four-fingered gesture that represented the fork they used to stab Tate. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it just gets worse, you know? This all wasn't in the documentary. <laughs> this, these people are crazy. That's what it is. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, so here, okay. We're just going to press on because we're in it now, you know. No going back. Shortly after its formation as an independent group, Weatherman created a central committee, the Weather Bureau, which assigned its cadres to a series of collectives in major cities. These cities included New York, Boston, Seattle, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Buffalo, and Chicago, the home of SDS's head office. Um, the collectives set up under the Weather Bureau drew their design from Che Guevara's FOCO theory, 
which focused on the building of a small semi-autonomous cells guided by a central leadership. To try to turn their members uh, into hardened revolutionaries and to promote solidarity and cohesion, members of collectives engaged in intensive criticism sessions, which attempted to reconcile their prior and current activities to Weatherman doctrine. These critical self-criticism sessions, also called CSC or Weather Fries, were the most distressing part of life in the collective. Derived from Maoist techniques, it was intended to root out racist, individualist, and chauvinistic tendencies within group members. Uh, at its most intense, members would be berated for up to a dozen or more hours nonstop about their flaws. It was intended to make uh, group members believe that they were deep down white supremacists by subjecting them to constant criticism to break them down. The sessions were used to ridicule and bully those who didn't agree with the party line and force them to, uh, into acceptance. However, the sessions were also successful at purging potential informants from the Weatherman's ranks, making them crucial to the Weatherman's survival as an underground organization. The Weathermen were also determined to destroy bourgeois individualism amongst members that would potentially interfere with the commitment to both the Weathermen and the goal of the revolution. Personal property was either renounced or given to the collective, with income being used to purchase uh, purchase the needs of the group and members enduring Spartan living conditions. Conventional uh, comforts were forbidden and leadership was exalted, giving them the immense power of their subordinates. In some collectives, um, the leadership could even dictate personal decisions, such as where one went. Martial arts were practiced, and occasional direct actions uh, were engaged in. Critical of monogamy, they launched a smash monogamy campaign, in which couples whose affection was deemed unacceptably possessive, counter-revolutionary, or even selfish, were to be split apart. Collectives underwent forced rotation of sex partners, including allegations that some male leaders rotated women between collectives in order to sleep with them, in some cases uh, engaged in sexual orgies. The formation, or this formation continued during 1960 and 1970 until the group went underground uh, and a more relaxed lifestyle was adopted as the group blended into counterculture. My God. <laughs> What a, what a paragraph that was. That was a lot going on. So you couldn't go in where you wanted. People were just, if you, you're counter-revolutionary, if you have a freaking girlfriend. Wow. They just berate you for 12 hours at a time to break you down. This, why would you want to be a part of this? This is crazy. It just keeps getting crazier. So life in the collectives could be particularly hard for women who made up about half their members. Their political awakening had including a growing awareness of sexism, yet they often found that men took the lead in political activities and the discussion, with women often engaging in domestic work, as well as finding themselves confined to a second-tier leadership role. Certain feminist pol political beliefs had to be disavowed or muted, and the women had to prove, regardless of prior activist credentials, that they were as capable as men in engaging in political action as part of women's charades, which were felt to be driven or uh, by coerced machismo and failed to promote genuine solidarity amongst the women. While the Weatherman's sexual politics did not allow women to assert uh, desire 
and explore relationship with, with each other. It also made them vulnerable to sexual exploitation. This is like the most, this group, they're like so radical about certain things. Another, they call white babies pigs, but then they're like, women don't have a chance to do anything in here because they're a woman. It's like the most backwards, uh, these people, special group here we're talking about. Yikes. So let's talk a little bit about the recruitment of Weathermen. Uh, Weather used various means by which to recruit new members and set into motion a nationwide revolt against the government. Weather members aimed to mobilize people into action against the established leaders of the nation and patterns of injustice which existed in America and abroad due to America's presence overseas. They also aimed to convince people uh, to resist reliance upon their given privilege and to rebel and take arms if necessary. According to Weatherman, if people tolerated the unjust actions of the state, they became complicit in those actions. In the manifesto compiled by Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, Jeff Jones, and Celia Sojourn, I think is how that's said, entitled Prairie Fire, the Political Revolutionary Anti-Imperialism. Really rolls off the tongue, you know. Weathermen explained that their intention was to encourage the people to provoke leaps in confidence and consciousness in an attempt to stir the imagination, organize the masses, and join in on people's day-to-day struggles in every possible way. In the year 1960, over a third of America's population was under 18 years old. That's crazy. Well, the number of young citizens set stage for a widespread revolt against the perceived structures of racism, sexism, and classism, the violence of the Vietnam War, and America's interventions abroad. At college campuses throughout the country, anger against the establishment's practices prompted both peaceful and violent protests. Members of the Weathermen targeted high school and college students, assuming they would be willing to rebel against the authoritative figures who had oppressed them, including cops, principals, and bosses. Weather aimed to develop roots within the class struggle targeting white working-class youths. The younger members of the working class became the focus of the organization uh, effort because they felt the oppression strongly in regards to the military draft, low-wage jobs, and schooling. Schools became a common place of recruitment for the movement, and direct actions dubbed jailbreaks, weather members invaded educational institutions as a means by which to recruit high school and college students. The motivation of these jailbreaks was the organization's belief that school was where the youth was oppressed by the system and where they learned to tolerate society's faults instead of rise against them. According to Prairie Fire, young people are channeled, coerced, misled, miseducated, misused in the school setting. It is in schools that the youth of the nation become alienated from the authentic processes of learning about the world. Factions of the Weathermen organization uh, began recruiting members by applying their own strategies. Women's groups such as the Motor City 9 and Cell 16 took the lead in various recruitment efforts. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, a member of the radical women's liberation group called Cell 16, spoke about her personal recruitment agenda, saying that she wanted their group to go out in every corner of the country and tell women the truth, recruit local people, poor and working class, in order to build a new society. Barger explains the controversy surrounding recruitment strategies, saying, 
in quotes, as an organization strategy, it was less than successful. White working class youths were more than alienated uh, by organizations, by Weathers' spectacles, and even some of those interested in the group were turned off by its early hijinks. The methods of recruitment applied by the Weathermen met controversy as their call to arms became intensely radical and the organization's leadership increasingly exclusive. In 2006, Dan Berger, writer, activist, and longtime anti-racism organizer, states that following the initial set of bombings, which resulted in the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion, the organization adopted a new paradigm of the direct action set forth of the communique New Morning Changing Weather, which aburged attacks on people. The shift in the organization's outlook was good in part due to the 1970 death of weathermen Terry Robbins, Diana Ogden, and Ted Gold, all graduate students in the Greenwood Village townhouse explosion. Terry Robbins was a renowned uh, among the organization members for his radicalism and beliefs in violence as an effective action. According to Dan Berger, a relatively sophisticated program of armed propaganda was adopted. This consisted of a series of bombings of government and corporate targets in relation or retaliation, I'm sorry, for specific imperialist and oppressive acts. Small, well-constructed time bombs were used, generally in vents and restrooms, which exploded at times the spaces were empty. Timely warnings were made and communiques were issued, explaining the reasoning for the attacks. So let's go over some of these attacks. Um, so shortly before the Days of Raids demonstrations on October 6, 1969, the Weathermen planted a bomb which blew up a statue in Chicago commemorating the death of police officers during the 19, or, I'm sorry, 1886 Haymarket riot. The blast broke nearly 100 windows and scattered police, pieces of the statue onto the Kennedy Expressway below. The city rebuilt the statue and unveiled it on May 4, 1970, but the weathermen blew that one up as well on October 6, 1970. The city rebuilt the statue once again, and Mayor Richard J. Daly posted a 24-hour police guard to protect it. The weathermen destroyed the third one as well. <laughs> the <laughs> uh, it's not really that. It's not shouldn't be funny, but it's kind of funny. Uh, the city compromised and b rebuilt the monument once more, but this time they located it at Chicago Police Headquarters. Probably a good move. <laughs> That's pretty funny. One of the first acts of the weathermen after splitting from SDS was to announce that they would hold the, in quotes, Days of Rage that autumn. This was advertised to bring the war home, hoping to cause sufficient chaos to wake the American public out of what they saw as complacency toward the role of the U.S. in the Vietnam War. The weathermen meant for this to be the largest protest of the decade, expecting thousands of people. However, when they arrived, they found only a few hundred. According to Bill Ayers in 2003, the Days of Rage was an attempt to break from the norms of kind of acceptable theater of here are the anti-war people, containable, marginal, predictable, and here's the little path they're going to march down, and here's, why people can make the, here's where people can make their little statement. We wanted to say, no, this is what we're going to do. Um, it's whatever we have to do to stop the violence in Vietnam. The protest did not meet Ayer's stated expectations. <laughs> Though the October 8, 1969 rally in Chicago failed to draw as many as the weathermen had anticipated, 
the two or three hundred that did attend shocked police by rioting through the affluent Gold Coast neighborhood. They smashed windows of a bank and those of many cars. The crowd ran four blocks before encountering police barricades. They charged the police but broke into small groups. More than 1,000 police counterattacked. Many protesters wearing motorcycle and football helmets, but the police were trained and armed. Large amounts of tear gas were used, and twice, or at least twice, police ran squad cars into the mob. The rioting lasted about half an hour, during which 28 policemen were injured, six weathermen were shot by police, and an unknown number injured. 68 rioters were arrested. For the next two days, Weatherman held no rallies or protests. Supporters of RYM2, or the RYM2 movement, led by Klonsky and Noel Ignatin, uh, held peaceful rallies in front of the national court or federal courthouse. I'm sorry, an international harvester factory and Cook County Hospital. The largest event of the Days of Rage took place on Friday, October 9th, when RYM2 led an interracial march of 2,000 people through a Spanish-speaking part of Chicago. On October 10th, the weathermen attempted to regroup and resume their demonstrations. About 300 protesters marched through the loop of Chicago's main business district and watched by a double line of heavily armed police. The protesters suddenly broke through the police lines and rampaged through the loop, smashing the windows of cars and stores. The police were prepared and quickly isolated the rioters. Within 15 minutes, more than half of the crowd had been arrested. The Days of Rage cost Chicago and the state of Illinois about $183,000, $100,000 for National Guard expenses, $35,000 in damages, and $20,000 for injured citizens' medical expenses. Most of the weathermen and STS leaders were now in jail, and the weathermen could have would have to pay over $243,000 for their bail. Oof. The Flint War Council was a series of meetings of the Weather Underground Organization and Associates in Flint, Michigan, that took place on the 27th uh, through the 31st of December of 1969. During these meetings, the decisions were made that the Weather Underground Organization was to go underground and engage in guerrilla warfare against the United States government. This decision was made in response to increased pressure from law enforcement and a belief that the underground guerrilla warfare was the best way to combat the U.S. government. During a closed-door meeting of the Weather Underground's leadership, the decision was also taken to abolish the Students for a Democratic Society. This decision reflected the splintering of SDS into hostile rival factions. All right, we're going to talk about the New York City arson attacks. On, <clears throat> excuse me, on February 21st, 1970, at around 4.30 a.m., three gasoline-filled Molotov cocktails exploded in front of the home of New York Supreme Court Justice John M. Murtaugh, who was presiding over the pre-trial hearings of the so-called Panther 21 members of the Black Panther Party over a plot to bomb New York City landmarks and department stores. Justice Murtaugh and his family were unharmed but two panes of a front window were shattered, an overhanging wooden eave was scorched, and the paint of a car in his garage was charred. Free the Panther 21 and Viet Cong Have Won were written in large red letters on the sidewalk in front of Judge, uh, Judge's house at 529 West 217th Street in the Inwood neighborhood of Manhattan. 
The judge's house had been under hourly police surveillance. An unidentified woman called the police a few minutes before the explosions to report several prowlers there, which resulted in police car being sent immediately to the scene. In the preceding hours, Molotov cocktails had been thrown at the second floor of Columbia University's International Law Library at 434 West 116th Street and at a police car parked across the street from the Charles Street Police Station in the West Village in Manhattan and at an Army and Navy recruiting booth on Nordstrand Avenue on the eastern fringe of the Brooklyn College campus in Brooklyn, causing no or minimal damage in incidents of unknown relation to that at Judge Murtaugh's home. According to the December 6, 1970, New Morning Changing Weather, Weather Underground communique signed by Bernadine Dorn and Kathy Wilkerson's 2007 memoir, The Firebombing of Judge Murtaugh's Home, in solidarity with the Panther 21, was carried out by four members of the New York cell that was devastated two weeks later by the March 6, 1970 townhouse explosion. So let's talk a little bit deeper about that. Greenwich Village explosion. Weathermen underground members Diana Octon, Ted Gold, Terry Robbins, Kathy Wilkerson, and Kathy Bowden were making bombs in a Greenwich Village townhouse on March 6, 1970, when one of the bombs detonated. Octon, Gold, and Robbins were killed. Wilkerson and Bowden escaped unharmed. They were making the bombs in order to kill Army soldiers and non commissioned officers who would be attending the NCO dance at Fort Dix and to randomly kill people at Butler Library at Columbia University. An FBI report stated that they had high or had enough explosives to level both sides of the street. Wow. The site of the village explosion was the former residence of Charles Merrill, co-founder of Merrill Lynch brokerage firm and the childhood home of his son, James Merrill. James Merrill memorialized this event in his poem, 18th West 11th Street, the address of the Brown, Brownstown townhouse. After the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion, per the December 1969 Flint War Council decisions, the group was now well underground and began to refer to themselves as the Weather Underground Organization. At this juncture, uh, Weather Underground shrank considerably, becoming even fewer than they had been when they first formed. The group was devastated by the loss of their friends, and in late April 1970, members of the Weathermen met in California to discuss what happened in New York and the future of the organization. The group decided to reevaluate their strategy, particularly regarding their belief in the acceptance of human casualties, and rejected such tactics as kidnapping and assassinations. In 2003, Weather Underground members stated in interviews that they had wanted to convince the American public that the United States was truly responsible for the calamity in Vietnam. The group began striking at night, bombing empty offices, with warnings always issued in advance to ensure a safe evacuation. According to David Gilbert, who took part in the 1981 Brinks robbery that killed two police officers and a Brinks guard uh, and was jailed for murder, their goal was not to hurt any people, and a lot of work went into that but we wanted to pick targets that showed the public who was responsible and what was really going on. So now let's get into the declaration of war. In response to the death of Black Panther members Fred Hampton and Mark Clark in 1969, during a police raid on May 21, 1970, the Weather Underground issued a declaration of war 
against the United States government using for the first time its new name, the Weather Underground Organization, adopting fake identities and pursuing covert activities only. These initially included preparations for a uh, bombing of a U.S. military non-commissioned officer's dance at Fort Dix, New Jersey, in what Brian Flanagan said had been intended to be the most horrific hit the United States government had ever suffered on its own territory. On May 21, 1970, a statement from the Weather Underground was issued promising to attack a symbol or institution of American injustice within two weeks. The statement included taunts toward the FBI, daring them to try to find the group, whose members were spread throughout the United States. Many leftist organizations showed curiosity in the statement and waited to see if the act would in fact occur. However, two weeks would pass without any occurrence. Then on June 9, 1970, the first publicly acknowledged bombing occurred at a New York City police station. The FBI placed the Weather Underground organization on the 10 most wanted list by the end of 1970. So here is a list of the other acts they committed in 1970. On June 9th, a bomb was made with 10 sticks of dynamite exploded in the 240 Center Street, uh, the headquarters of the New York City Police Department. The explosion was preceded by a warning about six minutes prior to the detonation and was followed by a weather underground claim of responsibility. On July 23rd, a Detroit federal grand jury indicted 13 weatherman members uh, in a national bombing conspiracy along with several unarmed co-conspirators. 10 of the 13 already had outstanding federal warrants. In September, the group accepted a $20,000 payment from the largest international psychedelic drug distribution organization, that's a mouthful, called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. <laughs> that's like the, the, the fact that they are working with the complete opposite, the Weather Underground and the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. That's like everything that they stand against. <laughs> That's the most drug name of anything I've ever heard. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, and this was to break LSD advocate Timothy Leary out of a California prison in San Luis Obispo, north of Santa Barbara, and transport him and his wife to Algeria, where Leary joined Eldridge Cleaver. Rumors also circulated that the funds were donated by an internationally known female folk singer in Los Angeles, or by Elephant's Memory, which was John Lennon's backup band in New York City, and was a factor with the uh, attempted de deportation of Lennon, who had donated all bail money to radical groups. In October, uh, ben Bernadine Dorn was put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. On March 1st, or so 1971 now, on March 1st, members of the Weather Underground set off a bomb on the Senate side of the U.S. Capitol uh, building. While the bombs smash windows and cause hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage, there are no casualties. On May 19, 1972, which was Ho Chi Minh's birthday, the Weather Underground placed a bomb in the women's bathroom in the Air Force wing of the Pentagon. The damage caused flooding that destroyed computer tapes holding classified information. Other radical groups worldwide applauded the bombing, illustrated by German youths protesting against American military systems in Frankfurt. Uh, this was in retaliation for the U.S. bombing raid in Hanoi. In 1973, the government requested dropping charges against most of the Weather Underground members. The request cited a recent decision by the Supreme Court of the United States that barred electronic surveillance without a court order. 
This Supreme Court decision would hamper any prosecution of the WO cases. In addition, the government did not want to reveal any foreign intelligence secrets that would acquire that a trial would require. Bernadine Dorn was removed from the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list on December 7, 1973. As with earlier federal grand juries that uh, subpoenaed Leslie Bacon and Stu Albert in the U.S. Capitol bombing case, these investigations were known as fishing expeditions, with evidence gathered through uh, black bag jobs, including illegal mail openings that involved the FBI and United States Postal Service, burglaries by FBI field offices, and electronic surveillance by the Central Intelligence Agency against the support network, friends and family members of the Weather Underground as part of Nixon's COINTELPRO apparatus. The grand jury uh, caused Sylvia Jane Brown, Robert Gelbhard, and future members of the Seattle Weather Collective to be subpoenaed in Seattle and Portland for the investigation of one of the first and last captured WO members. Four months afterward, the cases were dismissed. The decisions in these cases led directly to the subsequent resignation of FBI Director L. Patrick Gray and federal indictments of W. Mark Felt um, and Edwin Miller, and which earlier was the factor leading to removal of federal most wanted uh, status against members of the Weather Underground's leadership in 1973. So now let's talk about Prairie Fire. With the help from... Clayton Van Lidgraf, I think is how it's said. That's a name right there. Wow. The Weather Underground sought a more Marxist-Lenist ideological approach to post-Vietnam reality. The leading members of the Weather Underground, Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, Jeff Jones, and Celia Sojourn, collaborated on ideas and published a manifesto, Prairie Fire, the Politics of Revolutionary Anti-Imperialism. The name came from a quote by Mao Zedong, a single spark can set a prairie fire. By the summer of 1974, 5,000 copies had surfaced in coffee houses, bookstores, and public libraries across the U.S. Leftist newspapers praised the manifesto. Weather had recognized this shortcoming and in Prairie Fire detailed a different strategy for the 1970s which demanded both mass and clandestine organizations. The role of the clandestine organization would be to build the consciousness of action and prepare the way for the development of the people's militia. Concurrently, the role of the mass movement uh, would include support for and encouragement of armed actions, such as Alliance would, according to the weather, help create the sea for the guerrillas to swim in. According to Bill Ayers in the late 1970s, the Weatherman Group further split into two factions, the May 19th Communism Organization and the Prairie Fire Collective with Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers in the latter. The Prairie Fire Collective favored coming out of hiding and establishing an above-ground revolutionary mass movement. With most Weather Underground members facing the limited criminal charges, uh, most of the charges have been dropped by the government in 1973, against them, creating an above-ground organization was more feasible. The May 19th Communist Organization uh, continued in hiding as a clandestine organization, a divisive factor in Dorn's coming out of hiding were her concerns about her children. The Prairie Fire Collective faction started to surrender to the authorities from the late 1970s to the early 1980s. The remaining Weather Underground members continued to attack U.S. institutions. 
Despite the change in their legal status, the Weather Underground remained underground for a few more years. However, by 1976, the organization was disintegrating. The Weather Underground held a conference in Chicago called Hard Times. <laughs> Just <laughs> wonder what that's about. Uh, that's not going good. <laughs> the idea was to create an umbrella organization for all radical groups. However, the event turned sour when Hispanic and black groups accused the Weather Underground and the Prairie Fire Committee of limiting their roles on racial issues. The Weather Underground faced accusations of abandonment of the revolution by reversing their original ideology. The conference increased divisions within the Weather Underground. East Coast members favored a commitment to violence and challenged commitments of old leaders, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, and Jeff Jones. These older members found that they are no longer liable for the federal prosecution because of illegal wiretaps and the government's unwillingness to reveal sources and methods uh, favored a strategy of inversion where they would have to be above ground. Um, Jeremy Varon argues that by 1977, the WO had disbanded. The federal government estimated that only 38 weathermen had gone underground in 1970, though estimates varied widely. According to a variety of official and unofficial sources, as between 50 and 600 members. So really, they got no idea. Most modern sources lead towards a much larger number than the FBI reference. An FBI estimate in 1976, only slightly later, or even then, the current membership was down to 30 or fewer. Widely known as members of the Weather Underground include Kathy Bowden, Linda Sue Evans, Brian Flanagan, David Gilbert, Ted Gold, Naomi Joff, Jeff Jones, Joe Kelly, Diana Octon, Eleanor Raskin, Terry Robbins, Mark Rudd, Matthew Steen, uh, Susan Stern, Laura Whitehorn, Eric Mann, Kathy Wilkerson, and the married couple Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. The Weather Underground was referred to as a terrorist group by articles in the New York Times, United Press International, and Time Magazine. The group also fell under the auspicious of the FBI New York City Police Anti-Terrorist Task Force and forerunner of the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Forces. The FBI refers to the organization in a 2004 news story titled Bite Out of History, published on its website, as been having a domestic terrorist group that is no longer an active concern. Some of the members have disputed the terrorist categorization and justify the group's actions as an appropriate response to what they described as the terrorist activities of the war in Vietnam, domestic racism, and the deaths of black leaders. And that pretty much does it for the Weather Underground. It's kind of that episode was kind of all over the place, I know. It's kind of hard to go, I don't it's hard to summarize what they were because they didn't know what they were. They were this one day, and then the next day they were this, and then they wanted to be terrorists, and then they all of a sudden, now they all come out saying they don't, they're not terrorists. So it's, it's, it's a very strange, I think it's like a sign of the times. Like they were just fed up with the war, which is understandable, and they wanted to take their frustration out and do something about it, but they didn't know exactly how to do it. So they just started taking their frustrations out any way they could. and. They thought they were doing good when they weren't. They probably messed a lot of people's lives up. Um, 
and yeah, and they end up killing three of their own people just by for nothing, basically. I mean, they were planning on killing soldiers at a dance. So, I mean, you kind of get what you asked for. You were planning on killing innocent people and you killed yourself. That's, uh, yeah, you kind of had that coming. But again, what do you think about these, this group? Um, comment below. Comment on our Instagram. Um, shoot us a message. Shoot us an email. We got an email. We're official. Yeah, just let us know. Um, it's one of those ones, like I said, that's it's not really talked about. They didn't really, I mean, they did a little bit. They didn't really do a whole lot, so it's kind of understood why it's not more widely known. But it's just one of those groups that were a part of the 60s. I mean, it was just a, a, a product of their environment. They were mad, and they wanted to do something about it. So they, it was just a bunch of kids, really. I mean, a bunch of college kids, and they just formed this thing that uh, kind of took on a life of its own. And they once... It just started going, and then people kind of take it the way they want to take it, and it gets more violent, and then, I don't know. Once you let that out of the bag, it's kind of hard to contain it. So it's just one of those things. It's like an interesting uh, display in human just uh, psychology, just how a certain environment can produce this. Like, this isn't happening today, but there's, I don't know. It's, the times were different. So it's just interesting, I think. Um, this was a long one. Sorry, it was just me talking the whole time. It's probably boring. But if you're still listening, I appreciate you. And uh, yeah, so we will be, I'll be back next week. And then after that, it'll be back to normal. So yeah, uh, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and uh, send us a message. Let us know how you liked it. Other than that, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.